0: Affiliate links, and that's another great way to support the podcast. Thank you for your generous attention.
1: Well, it's a, a, a great pleasure, kind of sweetness to come into this room and be with people as I have so many times over the years, and a little less frequently in this last year or so from traveling and other things. It's still wonderful. And I've come back from some other teaching outside of Spirit Rock. I was just at a conference of almost 10,000 therapists um, at the conference center next to Disneyland in Anaheim, the largest. <laughs> seemed fitting somehow to put the two groups together. Um, and there were all these great elders of the psychological world speaking various famous psychologists and psychiatrists and so forth. And there was conversations about how to deal with depression and anxiety and mood disorders. And there was, you know, different kinds of therapies of um, CBT, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy and DBT and EMDR and all the alphabets, ABCD (laughs) therapies and medication (laughs) and so forth. Um, And I gave a talk to, Quite a few people, probably three or 4,000 people came to the talk that I gave. Um, and instead of focusing on the medical model of Western psychology and psychiatry, where you have the diagnostic statistic manual and all the listings of disorders, um, because Western psychology and psychiatry and so forth is really oriented in the medical way to see what your diagnosis is, write the number, get some money from the insurance company first, and then treat you in some fashion or other. Um, I focused on what in Buddhist teaching is called original goodness and dignity. And rather than seeing the illness or the pathology of a person as who they are, that's maybe just their hobby, right? And they got a little... (laughs) A little caught up in it but who they really are when you see the behind the eyes the spirit of a person that original innocence that was born there original goodness dignity it's called all kinds of names buddha nature true nature and then you see the people that you're serving and you can work with them in these skillful means but you don't see them as their problems And that actually helps them to not see themselves as their problems, because we are oddly loyal to our suffering. You may have noticed that in some of your cases, right? Um, But there's a whole other vision of possibility. And last Sunday morning, um, I guess it was a week ago, um, uh, I was on... um, uh, Super Soul Sunday with Oprah Winfrey, which was fun, mostly because it was filmed actually in the summer in Hawaii. So I got to travel to Maui to her amazing place there and and so forth. And um, talk about much the same thing. You know, she was really interested. She was very gracious and she wants to bring out the best in people. So it was actually a pretty easy interview. Um... And they're very good makeup people. My daughter watched and said, "Dad, you looked really good in that." (laughs) Um, But what she really was interested in was the the nature of the spiritual journey, and the spiritual journey doesn't necessarily have to do with your outer accomplishments, which may or may not be there or with your outer diagnosis, which may or may not be there, but, but discovering that no matter what circumstance you find yourself in, your heart is free to choose compassion or forgiveness, to open yourself with awareness rather than to get lost in delusion, um, and that the possibility of freedom is there for everyone. This is the invitation of mindfulness and Buddhist practice. And at that psychology conference, mindfulness was all over. There were all these different kind of mindfulness trainings and different kinds of things like that. It was become like mindfulness industries. Um, and I kind of wished I'd gotten stock options, but, you know, know anyway. Um, but the understanding that no matter what your circumstances, your heart is free to choose how you meet them, how you navigate them, and who you are in that circumstance. And so afterward, we had, a, we had dinner with Oprah um, and spent some time together. And I thought, well, what do I want to ask her about? And I've told this on a Monday night some months ago. Um, and the thing I was most interested to ask her about was Nelson Mandela because I knew that he was a hero of hers. And so I said, so, you know, what is your connection with Nelson Mandela? And she kind of half swooned. And she said, I had 29 meals with Nelson over the years. It was like talking about her guru or this, in a beautiful way, this person that she most admired. And she told a bunch of Nelson Mandela stories and things that are also in his, some part of it, in his kind of famous biography or autobiography how when he was put in prison they issued him shorts to wear and he said I won't wear them shorts are for boys I'm a man I will not give up my dignity I will either wear my pants or nothing and that was like his opening move right 27 years but he began from that place of dignity um, she also said she was sitting with them. They talked about everything. They talked about their dogs. They talked about family. They talked about Africa, about all kinds of, you know, about media. And at one point she said it seemed like it would be an important thing in Africa to really focus on women and girls and education and empowerment. And that she was thinking of maybe starting a school. She reaches over, picks up the phone, and says, send the minister of education over. Oprah's starting a school, right? <laughs> she said this was a man who got things done, right? You think it, and immediately it starts to happen. She talked about her school, you know, how many, many hundreds of girls have now gone through this great school. and. And hundreds of them are in college and university, lots in Africa, but some in America, and they call her. She's like their mom. Or they text her, Amma, Opa, I met this boy. (laughs) And I know you said not to do this so soon, but he seems really like the right one. What do you think? You know, you could feel like she was the mom to all these girls. It was beautiful. But Nelson Mandela, who died recently um, and was such a beacon of, generosity and magnanimity and forgiveness and all the best of humanity said, it never hurts to see the good in someone, they often act the better because of it. And so that expression, which he lived and brought to light in, across Africa and the world, is the human expression of that fundamental goodness, of that Buddha nature, to see that that's there in every single being. And to bring your relationship to the world through that lens, that understanding. To have the courage to see the beauty behind all the, you know, I mean, everybody's weird, including you, by the way, in case you haven't (laughs) noticed. But with that mysterious human incarnation, to see behind that the original innocence and beauty of that person. So here we are, and it's very clear, you know, solstice time, light in the darkness, that there is um, different kinds of darkness. There's the darkness of the season, but there's also the darkness of injustice and racism and continuing warfare and so forth. And as I say very often, it's quite obvious that the outer human developments which are so extraordinary of new biotechnology and nanotechnology and space technology and, you know, internet and all those things which are fantastic, haven't stopped continuing warfare, haven't stopped racism, haven't stopped environmental destruction, and that the outer developments of humanity have to be matched now by an inner development of compassion, conflict resolution skills, wisdom, understanding. We are, as one general said, a nation of nuclear giants and ethical infants. And so the, the call for us at this time, in, as, you, as human beings on this earth, is to develop these inner qualities as, a, as, as wisely and as strongly and as fully and as magnificently as we as we have done the outer ones. And, well, this is a passage from one of the Buddhist texts. It says, Just as if there were a beautiful pond with a pleasant shore, its water being clear, agreeable, cool, transparent, and a person came by scorched and exhausted by heat, fatigued, parched, and thirsty, would step into the pond, bathe, and drink, and all their plight, fatigue, and feverishness are gone, so too, my friends, whenever one hears and practices the Dharma, or the teachings of human possibility of evolution of the heart, whether it be explanations, marvelous statements, trainings of heart and mind, one's Plight and fatigue and feverish burning of the heart are all dissipated, and so the teachings of Dharma or the inner life say that there are causes for hatred, causes excuse me, causes for suffering, hatred, grudges, greed, um, ignorance, um, fear of one another, violence, and so forth, and that it is possible to train ourselves. To to discover the ability to practice and live with gratitude, with compassion for ourselves and others. And as the Dalai Lama says, if you want others to be happy, practice compassion. If you want yourself to be happy, practice compassion. It's not that complicated, really. you know. So there's a path of <coughs> quieting the mind, opening the heart, discovering the capacity of inner balance and equanimity, of mindfulness and generosity, and compassion and we can cultivate and live in that way as human beings. Now the solstice holidays which are celebrated in all kinds of cultures um, are a time to in a symbolic way to attend to the light inside the dark the luminous darkness through candles and rituals of all different kinds Um, It is a way of remembering something that's timeless. Yes, we know in some way or hope or maybe pray that the days get longer and the sun comes back, so to speak. But it also is a time for us to stop and sense the timeless stillness, the vastness, mysterious vastness around which we move in our lives. And to remember that original goodness, that original innocence, archetypally the child of the spirit, the Christmas child is that, and to begin to look for it in yourself, to live from that, and to look for it in one another. And so we stop, whether we sit in meditation or take a walk on Mount Tam in the darkness of the morning or the evening or by the ocean, and listen to some turning of seasons and our place in it that is deeper and stiller and more more lovingly connected, which is really what's true, than we usually know. Now, in the various Buddhist texts of which there are many in the Mahayana tradition. There's the Flower Ornament Sutra, the Avatamsaka Sutra. And the Avatamsaka Sutra, um, which has 25 volumes, describes all these different universes. You know, what the Kepler and various satellites are seeing now hundreds and then thousands of planets and Billions of galaxies with trillions of stars and so forth. It sort of wrote all that out in advance and said yes, you know. And there's these astonishing numbers: this many grains of sands on the Ganges. Times that many grains of sands of the Ganges, that's how many stars there are, and then universes beyond that and so forth. But in each universe, it says, universes made of fire, and universes made of stone, and universes made of perfume, universes made of dreams, all kinds of universes, flowers, universes, there appear Buddhas, and the Buddhas have the same message that there is suffering caused by greed, and hate, and fear, and confusion, and ignorance. And there's a liberation that's possible for beings in that universe. And then they give all the poetic descriptions of the, that liberation. In one universe, it's called escape from prison. In another, it's called freedom from all sorrows. In another, it's endless peace or infinitude or supreme insight. In another, it's called the freedom from follies. The escape from illusion blamelessness, original purity in one universe, pure discernment, the indestructible, constant equanimity, the place good to enter, the praiseworthy heart, emancipation, nonfabrication, tranquility, true contentment, abiding in the essence of things. It goes on and on. You can read the universes as you're interested. But what it says, as Zen Master Suzuki Roshi said so simply, is when we realize the fact that everything changes, and find our composure in it—joy and sorrow, praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, light and dark, birth and death. Anybody not have this? Is checking? You can have your eight dollars back, right? You know? This is what human incarnation is. It's this alternation of praise and blame and gain and loss. It's not a mistake, it's what you get when you come on this planet. That in the midst of joy and sorrow and gain and loss and praise and blame, when you realize the fact that everything changes and find your composure in it, there you discover liberation, you discover nirvana. It's not in the Himalayas, it's not there with some cool guru or great old Tibetan Lama, or you know, whatever kind of fantasy you might have. It happens to live only one place, which is in your own heart. So the invitation of meditation and practices and Spirit Rock, all these people that come, is really to find this freedom in yourself. Now, we have a bit of a negativity bias, as it's been said. That is to say that as we evolved, if there was a little movement in the bush and you ignored it because it wasn't just the wind, maybe, and it wasn't, you were eaten and that was it, right? So you sort of had to worry about things, even though only one time in a hundred it was some predator or something like that, or something moved and could have been a, a vine or a snake, you better get out of the way. Because if it's a vine, no problem, you know, you can see. But if it wasn't, you were in trouble. So we tend to be tuned to see the problems of things, yes? And when we first started teaching meditation 40 years ago, my colleagues and I, and we came from very strict monasteries in Thailand and Burma, we kind of wanted the real thing, give me the heavy-duty, you know, intense ascetic treatment. We were young men. Is there anything difficult to do around here? You know, (laughs) test yourself, whatever. But it turned out that it wasn't all that helpful to people to stress the suffering and the difficulty. You have enough of it, right? And the point of meditation isn't to make it a new grim duty, right? Like, you know, as I say, you go to the gym, and you do therapy, and you die, and so now I'll meditate, right? It's not that. Florida Scott Maxwell. I like to quote her this wonderful novelist. She said, no matter how old a mother is, um, still, she continues to look at her middle-aged children for signs of improvement, right? <laughs> and we sort of do that to ourselves in some way. But it's not about that. This is from Xin Chi, a great Chinese poet. He said, in my young days, I never tasted sorrow. I wanted to become a famous poet. I wanted to get ahead, so I pretended to be sad and tragic. Now I'm old and have known the depths of every sorrow, and I'm content to loaf and enjoy the clear autumn day. (laughs) So we started with this, our own way of teaching, that had a focus on look at the suffering of life and don't turn away and notice that that's true. But there is so much more than that. That's only the first step, and an important one. But beyond it is the joy is the freedom, is that description in the Avatamsaka or from Suzuki Roshi of finding graciousness, ease, inner stillness, peace and well-being of the human heart. And my teacher Gosananda, who is the Gandhi of Cambodia, I remember him being here. He visited in our center in Massachusetts as well. He had this very bright orange robe, kind of short and this amazing kind of radiant metta loving kindness my my daughter who was doing some video of these him and dalai lama things called him butterball she said oh butterball's here today you know and he would just go up and love people or people go to hear the dalai lama and as i've said they don't go just for the teachings those are okay they're cool you know and tibetan you know great wonderful practices but mostly people go to hear him laugh You know, I've heard him give teachings that were actually somewhat incomprehensible. Seriously. He went to, when he first came to the U.S., on his first trip, he gave this invited lecture at Harvard University, this, you know, filled this great auditorium, and he spoke for two and a half hours on Madhyamaka and some of the teachings of Nagarjuna in this text, And there were a handful of us in the room that kind of knew what he was talking about. But it was like, okay, I'm at Harvard. I'll show these guys. You know, we have philosophy and psychology and things that will blow them out of the water, basically. And at the end, when he finished all that, he said, hmm, maybe you didn't understand this. No problem. Just practice compassion. (laughs) Everybody smiled. You know, and then he giggled and he laughed and everyone was happy again, right? Because they thought they had missed the boat. And so the point of spiritual practice isn't to perfect yourself, it's to perfect your love. And I was recently, quite recently, had the honor of being part of the graduation in San Quentin of the year-long program called From Insight Out, run by Jacques Verdun and others that grew out of Spirit Rock's prison program, now is spread around other prisons. And it was so moving to have 50 men in caps and gowns who had done mindfulness training, anger management, um, uh, yoga, and kind of body regulation skills. Um, it really deep inner, um, how do you say it, in, in 12-step work, a kind of very deep moral inventory and looking at what they had done and what the consequences were. Um, and speaking there also were some of the victims or the family of victims of people who had been murdered, because these were mostly lifers. And they said, I had to come and meet these people who could do this to my brother or my daughter or my mother or something. And over this year of working with them, I realized that they're people too. They were young and messed up. And these men stood up and said, "We we apologize. We were so messed up, on and drugs and violence and around us, and we didn't know what we were doing, and we're so sorry. Actually, then Luis Rodriguez, who's a great Latino poet, stood up and said, we also have to owe, we also owe an apology to you men, for those of you who grew up in places of poverty, racism, injustice, um, addiction, and so forth, where you didn't have a chance either so we have to apologize to one another. And people were weeping. It was really extraordinary to see it. Um, (coughs) Suzuki Roshi again. can find this passage. He says, a famous psychiatrist questioned the Zen master Suzuki Roshi about the higher states of consciousness that Zen could produce I don't know anything about consciousness, said Suzuki Roshi. I just try to teach my students how to hear the birds sing. And there was something about being with these men and seeing that innocence return to them that lightened up the room. The governor had a representative and there were other people. But more than anything, it was their spirit. So the, the point of spiritual practice isn't, again, a grim duty, although they're difficult things to go through at times because we have to face our life, but it's t- to be able to come th- through that or to that and realize that that's not the end of the story. As the poet Pablo Neruda says, and I use this line in San Quentin looking at these men when I spoke, his, his famous line, you can pick all the flowers, but you can't stop the spring. And no matter what the tragedies of the world, there's also a force of life that we can align ourselves with that changes everything. And so we take our seat in meditation to quiet the mind and open the heart. And of course, then what happens? All the unfinished business comes, the grief and tears you haven't shed. They say, okay, now you're quiet, it's time. Or the tension in your body, because you've been running around a lot and it hurts. And it says, hey, pay attention to me. Or the sleepiness, you know, poor man's nirvana, they call it, right? Because you're tired. And your body says, I'm tired, right? And so you get all that. You get the tears that are unshed and the unfinished business or the conflict or the anger. All those things show themselves And at the same time, you are asked to become the space of kind awareness, of loving awareness that says, yes, this is part of human incarnation. And who I am is so much bigger than the tears or the loss or the longing or the fear or the desire. Yes, fear, fear, I notice you. feels like I'm going to die, dying, dying. Where shall I go for lunch, right? You know, (laughs) because the mind has no pride and it will do anything, right? And you see how the mind works, And you find your place as the Buddha that sees the... This is the mind doing its thing, but that's not who you are. When we first would say and teach people 40 years ago in the West to be mindful... in a stricter way, don't move, notice the suffering of life, that kind of, you know, a little heavy-handed, we learned very quickly that people would use the mindfulness to judge themselves. I'm not meditating right, I can't be on my breath, my body isn't still, and we have so much habit of self-judgment. So pretty soon and clearly we began to really wed the teaching of mindfulness with loving-kindness and compassion. What Ramdas likes to call loving awareness. Because otherwise, the mindfulness becomes a kind of new tool of judgment. You know what I mean, don't you? So instead, it's loving awareness that says, Ah, oh, this too, yeah. Yes, yes. Again, as one Zen master said, My life has been one continuous mistake. He said it with a smile, you know, the Zen failure. It goes very deep. Napoleon said, do you know what astonished me most on this earth? That the sword is always beaten by the spirit, always. This is Napoleon saying, this is what astonished me, that the sword is beaten by the spirit that what spirit you bring to your difficulties is really the medicine and the answer. So I met and listened to Aung San Suu Kyi, the great Nobel laureate from Burma speak, and she said, 17 years of house arrest, prison, and so forth. She said, but they never really had me in prison, because I never hated them. And so my heart was never in prison. I also recently, in the last weeks, taught a retreat together with Ram Dass and other good friends, Wes Nisker and Trudy Goodman, and Krishna Dass, who was chanting and singing, and it was beautiful. Um, it was uh, a retreat entitled um, Suffering into Grace. Ram Dass talked a lot about grace. And people came, there's 300-some people, a lot just to kind of bask in ramdas 's love because he's, he's in this really loving place. And the retreat had the usual meditators and people that I've known for years, but also it had people with cancer diagnosis and people whose children had died or nurses who were working with preemies who they would lose half the time, the really early neonatal ones, or... Activists coming back from Haiti or Afghanistan doing really hard frontline work. And um, for my part, I, I told a story as we began teaching, read um, a little one that Ramdas loved. In the Jewish mystical tradition, one great rabbi taught his disciples to memorize, reflect, contemplate, and place the holy teachings on their heart. And one day a student asked the rabbi, well, he always used the phrase, on your heart. And the master replied, only God can put the teachings in your heart. Here we recite and learn and put them on the heart, hoping that someday, when your heart breaks, they will fall in. And so in some way, you could say that our meditation practice, it really is practice. It's not perfect, right? It's practice. To learn how to be gracious with praise and blame and gain and loss and birth and death and to move through the world like Aung San Suu Kyi or Nelson Mandela or the Buddha that you are. And Ramdas, the main thing that he taught was love. Wes Nisker, who was there and teacher here, had interviewed Gary Snyder, um, the great activist, environmentalist, um, Pulitzer Prize-winning poet last year and said, when you see global warming and you see environmental destruction and so forth, you know, and how you've been working as an environmentalist for 60 years, what do you have to say to us? And Gary said, don't feel guilty. Really important. He said, don't feel guilty. If you want to save the earth or even to serve it, do it because you love it. Do it because guilt and anger and so forth, that makes it worse. Do it because you love it. So Ramdas sat there and he said, I love everything. He would bless people. I love everything. He said, I love the ceiling and the lights and the, you know, the people here. And I love it when people are born and I love it when people die. And I love the way the universe unfolds. And it's not my job to judge it. It's my job to love it. And you could really feel it from him. So he was saying this kind of teaching this for the last year and at one of his previous retreats or wherever he was saying this um uh, it was actually out and he was out in a restaurant with a with a group of friends (coughs) and one of the people sitting at the table was mickey lemley who's a filmmaker he made the film fierce grace about ram das made films about the dalai lama quite a good filmmaker and Mickey Lemley says, "All right, it's one thing to say you love this person and that one sitting at the table. You know, you love Mirabai, and you and you say you love the wall. How about this dirty carpet?" Ramdas says, "I love this carpet."
0: <laughs>
1: a little extreme, right? So, a couple weeks later, Mickey goes back to New York, and the next thing you know, Ramdas receives this very special express mail package, and he opens it up, and framed in a beautiful gold frame is a piece of stained carpet. With a note, put this on your altar next to your guru's picture, right? So he does, he has it there. And Lamas has this big altar with, you know, Buddhas and and Hanuman and and um, pictures of Maharaji and Anandama and Guadalupe and every kind of saint you could imagine and also pictures of Obama, Obama and Boehner and Bush and stuff. He he said I want them all up there. They all need it, right? <laughs> so and then there on the altar is the stained carpet. I love everything. And by the end of the retreat, he was in such a place of just loving life and loving the beings who were there and people got their blessing from him that people left kind of drunk, really, like just they were all kind of swooning as they left. It didn't matter what they'd been through. There was just so much joy and love that was communicated. So this is the game. You know, here you are in human incarnation, what are you going to do with it? Yes, there's injustice. You know, yes, there is hungry people that need to be fed and things to tend to. And there is also immense possibility The greatest peace army the world has ever seen was created in the 1930s in what was the northwest frontier province of India, now known as Afghanistan, always known as that to others other than the British. And it was organized by a close friend of Gandhi, a great tribal leader named Khan Abdul Ghaffar Khan, who trained 100,000 men, all devout Muslims, who vowed to resist British colonial rule without weapons in their hand or hate in their hearts and kept their vows despite imprisonment, torture, and all kinds of provocation. So just so your imagination sees what is possible for us. It's not what you get. Because you get everything. And Trudy, who I was teaching with, she told this wonderful story about being with her Zen master, Korean Zen master, Dae-san Sanim, De sung San, San Sanim, this wonderful Korean teacher that I also studied with, and she said, we used to sit, and he would talk about freedom and enlightenment and things like that, and we'd be sitting, and we'd be impatient or restless or sleepy, or all those things that happen when you first sit or see all this other stuff, and get discouraged, and he would say, stay dedicated, stay practicing, and soon you get everything. And she thought, great, I'll get enlightenment, I'll get joy, I'll get... She said it took about a year of sitting with all that stuff, restlessness and her own inner judgment and all the things of the human body, pleasure and pain and so forth, and then all of a sudden it dawned on her, he said, soon... You get everything. He meant everything. (laughs) He didn't mean like the things she thought was everything, but everything. So you take your seat, and you already have everything. That's the wild piece. Actually, you have everything you need to be free. You have everything you need to find joy, even though there are times you'll weep, and that's fine, too but you actually have everything. You have all the feelings you need. You have the consciousness, you have the body. You have what you need. You have everything. So in the early 1930s, this man tells a story. My father's business had collapsed. Jobs were almost non-existent. The country was in a deep depression. We lived in Seattle and had a tree for Christmas that year but no presents. We simply couldn't afford them. On Christmas Eve we all went to bed in pretty low spirits. Unbelievably when we woke up Christmas morning there was a mound of presents under the tree. We tried to control ourselves at breakfast but rushed through the meal in record time. Then the fun began. My mother went first. We surrounded her in anticipation and when she opened the package she saw that she'd been given an old shawl that she had had misplaced several months earlier and it had been stitched back together. My father got an old axe handle with a repaired broken handle. My sister got her old slippers. One of the boys got a newly washed pair of trousers. I got a hat, the same hat I thought I'd left in a restaurant back in November. Each old cast off came as a total surprise. Before long, we were laughing so hard we could barely pull the strings on the next package. But where had this largesse come from? It was my brother Morris. For several months, he had been secreting away old things he knew we wouldn't miss. And then on Christmas Eve, after all the rest of us had gone to bed, he had quietly wrapped up the presents and placed them under the tree. I remember this as the finest Christmas we ever had. This is it in the end, what spirit do you choose? You have your measure of sorrows and troubles, you all do, and betrayals, and you also have your gifts. It is the freedom of the heart to love, to open to say yes, to bring that spirit that we admire so much in Nelson Mandela. You know, it's not Nelson, it's you. It's possible for us, for each one of us. And it gives so much hope. This is why you can see 90-year-old widows committed to tending small flowers in spring and 10-year-olds with very little to eat care for stray kittens holding them to their skinny chests and painters going blind painting more and composers going deaf writing great symphonies. As you give yourself to life, it renews itself. It floods through you. And to sit in meditation, then, is an invitation to remember this mystery of your human incarnation, this possibility, and remember the possibility of love, no matter what, no matter where you are. I'd like us to do a little bit of of reflection for a, a couple of moments. And the reflection, as you get ready, is to set an intention for the year ahead. The Dalai Lama says, um, you know, my life has had many struggles, some successes, some failures, and what I can most fully rely on is my best intention, my motivation. The instruction from the Buddha, live in joy in love, even among those who hate. Live in joy in health, even among the afflicted. Live in joy in peace, even among the troubled. Look within, be still, free from fear and attachment. Know the sweet joy of living in the way. And so this is what you get to choose as your spirit no matter the circumstances. So let's just sit for a moment. As you are, you don't have to move or do anything weird. Um, But just reflect a little. If you could set an intention, if you could set a direction, set the compass of your heart for the
0: year ahead, what would that be? Thanks everybody for listening to the Jack Cornfield Heart Wisdom Hour. We appreciate your support, and we ask you to continue that support by going to mindpodnetwork.com slash jack. Look forward to seeing you next week.